Well, good morning. And grab your seat. Just grab the seat closest to you, even if it's not your seat. And you know we're in church, so you know your seat means like deeper than just the seat that I happen to sit in today. It's like your seat, right? No? Have you realized the problem that we have coming when we decide to gather together on February the 26th for one service? That, like, there is a whole other service happens where somebody comes and sits in your seat. And we're all going to come together in one service, and the Lord is going to have to intervene in the space just to bring peace and harmony when the person sits in your seat. So I'm just really interceding for grace in that space for all of us. Nope, you're not feeling it from me. You're like, no, we're going to have that fight, and we are going to win because 11 o'clock service will be victorious in the clash of West Side. <laughs> Hey, so, well, listen, I've been away. I've not taught uh, anywhere for the last month, so I'm hoping I can remember how to do this. I realized the other day that this is the longest I've not preached in 10 years, so, like, God bless you for having to uh, listen to that for the chunk of that that you've had to do. I, I thought I was taking, like, a three-week break from preaching, and last week I was actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma, because I know all the good places to go, and I, uh, I was supposed to be preaching down there, but the pilot of the Delta flight transpired against me uh, because as best as I can figure out, like, we all got on the plane in Calgary and we we're sat there literally in an upright position with our seatbelt securely fastened. And then this rumor started to go around the plane. Then we noticed there's nobody in the cockpit. And, and they boarded us on the plane, belted us in like sheep, and the pilot wasn't even there, right? And he turned up like an hour later and was like, hey, sorry, folks, I got stuck in an hour and a half of traffic in Calgary. And we were all like, but well, we're here. <laughs> and then after that, his wife got on the plane and we realized they'd gone to Banff for the weekend and hadn't realized that's a longer drive than, uh, than coming from the city. So uh, it meant that I, I, I missed, I went all the way to Tulsa to teach, teach and didn't. So I did get to spend the night on the floor in Atlanta though, so that was a lot of fun. Uh, Jesus taught me a lot about my personality in that space. And I can't even remember how to start a sermon, it's been that long. But uh, you know what, something that's been really just a gift to me, and I appreciate you all letting me take a, a bit of time off, and I know you're like, I wasn't consulted, but you didn't riot, so... I appreciate that. Um, it's been really important for me, actually, just to take a bit of space. There's a lot gone on in the last few years at Westside from, you know, all sorts of changes. And I really, it was interesting to sort of take a bit of space, not having to prep a sermon and say, hey, God, what do I need to kind of recommit to you? What do I need to allow God into that I've maybe not had sort of space and time to? And I'll talk to you a bit more about that in, in coming weeks, about how that might affect how I try and lead, uh, hopefully, in a more Jesus-like way here. But what I'm actually here for this morning is to talk about this series that Christine started for us last week called Unchurched. But I'd like to do something before I get to that. Would you stand with me for just a moment? I'd love for us to pray together. And there's something that, uh, actually, let's just pray. You know what we need to pray about. Father God, we come to you this morning with open hearts, but grieved and heavy hearts for the situation that's unfolded this week in Turkey and Syria. Lord, we're deeply deeply aware of how privileged just living is when we see situations like that which has transpired. And Lord, it, it moves us and then grieves us. And so we pray, Father God, right now that you would be close to the people who are suffering right now. Lord, guide rescuers, guide aid workers, guide us as, as your people in different parts of the world to look, to look carefully and 
graciously towards these situations and ask ourselves, how can we help both in prayer, practically, knowing that people are suffering just grief and loss and injury and death at catastrophic levels. And Lord, we come before you in these moments and we don't actually know how to pray because we're, we're so overwhelmed by thinking about how that could be in our own lives. And so God, we ask that you would just be God, the God that we know you are in those places. Soften our hearts, allow our hearts to remain heavy as we might look for and see opportunities that we can be the church in this situation as well. And Father God, as we turn to the gospel text right now and think even perhaps about these things as Jesus calls us to, Lord, we pray that your gospel would be in our heads and in our mouths and on our hearts as we engage with it this morning. Amen and amen. You're welcome to sit again, unless you would like to remain standing for the whole sermon. If you were here with us last week, you know that Christine finished early. Um, and what I've basically decided to do is take all of those saved minutes and use them this morning. Um, so uh, buckle in. Uh, I've been working on this for the last month. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Have you ever felt or have you ever been at sea in a dense fog? When it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way forward while you waited with beating heart for something to happen. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul. You may remember that Bob shared this quote with us just a few weeks ago as he was bringing the ghost series to an end. I know that you were all blessed by the things that Bob taught us. And I was struck by the resonance of Helen Keller's words about her own sort of tragedy in life and being dispossessed of her ability to see and also to hear. I was struck by this phrase, light, give me light. The gospel reading for this morning has has this sense that Jesus is calling us to be light. And then we have this, this, this lady writing in her memoir that light is what she wanted. But it was a wordless cry. How, how do you yearn for something that you do not know exists? Like a wordless cry. Because I can't conceptualize what it is that I need. I need something. I know I need something. But I don't know what it is. Because you know this, right? There's a form of darkness where we know the light that we're looking for. Like I'm in the dark and I know what light looks like. And if I just find that light, I'll be okay. Simultaneously, there's a form of darkness where we don't know what we're looking for. And is there, I wonder, a form of darkness that we don't even realize is darkness, that we might think it's even the light? Think about it in terms of lostness. You've been lost before, and you've known you're lost. You know that feeling, right? Like, I am lost. And how do you know you're lost? It's because I'm not where I'm trying to be, right? Uh, and you, I want to be here. I'm currently here. There's lost. But then there's also those points, and I'm sure you've had them. Often happens in a European city where you're like, I am lost, and 
I don't actually know what I'm looking for anymore. You know, like if you've ever traveled in a North American city, 4th Street is next to 3rd Street and 5th Street, right? Whereas, like to travel in London, you need to be aware of the names of all of the kings. And notice that we have lined up our streets in order of the kings and their bishops, not chronologically, but in order of how well we like them. And that's how you navigate London. So you've been in those places where you're like, I am lost and I don't even know what found looks like anymore. And then there's that other space where you're lost and you don't realize it. This often, often happens with your life partner, where one of you is deeply aware that you're lost and one of you is not. Anyone relate to this? <laughs> but let's, stepping away from that kind of philosophical precipice for a moment, Jesus seems to be making a kind of simple point to us here at one level. You are the light of the world. In fact, it's such a simple point that we've broadly consigned this text to children's church. Right? Light of the world, salt of the earth. Yes, that's what we teach kids. And we don't spend a lot of time reflecting on it as adults. But yet Jesus is speaking to adults when he says, you are the light of the world, so shine. It is dark, but there is a light. And at one level, this is actually the whole story of Scripture. Scripture is a story about darkness and light. The 24th word of the Hebrew creation story, Elohim, the Hebrew word for God, speaks for the first time. And at word 24, the first thing that he says is, be light. I have a particular fondness for it in the Latin because God comes along and he says, fiat lux. Let there be light, we translate it in English translations. And the beautiful thing is if you kind of know the way, and the Bible's setting you up here to understand how it works, God says, be light, and there was light. It's important that you take note, that's how it works. God speaks, things happen. I thought that was a much more profound thought than you apparently do, but... Perhaps, perhaps is a question you then need to ask yourself, because wait a minute, I've read this creation story. God says, word 24, be light, but the sun doesn't appear until day four. So light happens in the first few words, but the sun doesn't happen for several days yet, which the philosophical people amongst you go, so where was the light coming from? God speaks and there's light. Then in John's gospel, we find that the word... God speaking, the word becomes flesh, it's Jesus, and he is referred to as light coming into the world. See, there's this whole story in the Bible about light coming into the world that's not the sun. There's an other light, a light that helps us see in a different way. You see, there's this pattern going on, and then Jesus turns to his disciples. Jesus, the word of God spoken, the light of God in the world, and he says to his disciples, and in some sense, speaking to all people who would follow Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the city on the hill, which everybody thought was Jerusalem, and now Jesus is saying it's those who would follow him are the light. And then Jesus says this. Did you notice it? He says, no one, I've used a slightly different translation this time, just because I like the word bushel basket, I think it's better than bowl. You know, I mean, just think about that. You know, you turn to your beloved one and say, for this movie, should we get a bushel basket of popcorn? I mean, I think it better speaks to what we really want, isn't it, than just a bowl of popcorn. Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. No one after light, no one? I think we do this all the time. We light lamps and hide them all the time. We light empty office buildings 
And you drive through the city, they're all lit up. Nobody's there. We light rooms in our homes that we're not presently occupying. We light candles for ambiance and feng shui. <laughs> my garage has a light. I mean, am I, am I worried about my car being scared of the dark? Like, why? We light things all the time. Jesus says no one lights a lamp and covers it. And then 21 centuries later, we're like, just you watch us. <laughs> we're going to do this all the time. Now, Jesus is, as you know, speaking to a first century, likely rural, agrarian society where people are oppressed and downtrodden, and light is a precious commodity for them. In 1994, the Yale economist William Nordhaus decided to use light and work as his metric for understanding the standards of living across history. He decided that it would be interesting to calculate the wealth, inflation, and subsistence of people using basically this question. How much work is required for a person to provide for themselves one hour of light? And that's a kind of standard that we've needed throughout history, but it's required different things from us. Now, in one sense, that might sound like an unusual way to do it, but if you've ever been to Bed Bath & Beyond and you've wondered about how much is this staff member being paid to sell me a $20 candle, <laughs> then you've understood that economic exchange that's going on <laughs> right there. Now, in the Neolithic era, to produce the light equivalent to one modern light bulb, it required somebody to roughly work for six days, 10 hours a day, gathering, chopping, and burning wood in order to get the same amount of light as we get from one hour of a light bulb today. Today, in the kind of modern Canada, that six days of 10 hours labor would buy you 50 years of the same light bulb. And then the candle comes along and reshapes that. By Jesus' time, right through to like the 1800s, candles are the things that people are relying on. George Washington in the 1700s, you know the guy that became the president of America, or as Britain likes to refer him to him, rebel number one, um, he, he came along and he worked out that it cost roughly eight British pounds to light a candle for five hours a night. That would be broadly $1,500 today to get a year of one candle five hours a night. Now, the candles were made of animal fat, so there's that double benefit that you got light and your house smelled of bacon. <laughs> and then Edison comes along and Edison's invention tipped the scales. Because when the light bulb was invented, for the first time in world history, you could have an hour of light for less than an hour of work. And this is new. This has never happened before. So now you can see how the industry of, of the person changes massively because now we can work in the dark and we're not wasting money anymore. It used to be that it wasn't economically wise to work at night because it was harder to make the light than anything you would then produce. So in Jesus' world, nobody works for 60 hours to light a candle and put it under a bushel basket. So Jesus says, you are the light of the world, and only an insane person would light a light after working all week and then hide it. Now, if we can drop ourselves into that world, these words speak to us slightly differently. Jesus says, this has been hard work to get you here, <laughs> to give you this light. So don't hide it, share it. But then... You see this, this kind of picked up. Look at Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. He says to the church in Philippi, may you shine like stars in the world. Like this is this theme that cuts through the whole New Testament. The light that we have is precious. The light that we've been given is costly. Jesus gave everything to us that we might shine for him. 
So don't cover it. But then I kind of came back to this text, and as you know I like to do sometimes, was let's look at this text sideways for a moment. Not irreverently, but perhaps ask a question that Jesus poses to us that we might need to spend some time thinking about. Namely this question, why would someone put a bushel over a lamp? Why would someone cover a light? Perhaps like that unwelcome street light outside your bedroom window that necessitates curtains. Sometimes we assume that people would cover a light because what they're trying to do, they want to keep from the light. And then I remembered one of my first jobs as I was trying to figure out the path of my life was I worked as a shop hand in an engineering factory. I discovered that was not my skill set, by the way. I'm sure you can understand all the reasons why that was the case. <laughs> but what would happen from time to time in the factory is we would work with these big pieces of steel and they needed to be joined together so the welders came. And the welders started to weld these steel beams. And I don't know if you've ever been present when somebody's been welding, but when they're welding, it creates a light. And the light is so white, the light is so pure, that it's actually damaging to the human eye. So if you look at welding while when welding's happening, you can end up blind. So whenever the welders came out, they brought covers and screens and they covered the light because the light could damage us. Why would someone cover a light? I think in the modern context, the way we've handled the good news as the church of Jesus has led people to wish we would cover it up. We've, we've sort of talked about being the light of the world, but the way people have heard us talk about that sounds more like the sort of searchlight in a prison that finds you when you're trying to run away, that finds you when you don't want to be caught. And the church has sort of taken on this space where we see ourselves almost as the police officers of the world. That we're here to shine the lights on all the people doing the bad stuff. And we're here to tell you all that you're all evil sinners and that God doesn't like you very much and God's angry. Now, I'm being slightly facetious when I say it like that, but you've heard that, haven't you? This sense that the light of Jesus is a terrifying thing. And we live in this sort of discombobulation where we have a a church that seems to pride itself in pointing out everything that's wrong and pointing the light and uncovering all the wrong. And then the Jesus who is the light of the world, someone who all those who are lost and broken want to come to and have his light shine in their lives. How have we got this mixed up? And I wonder if we've not adopted to our way of being the church, a model and a way of thinking that's not dissimilar to, to how my forefathers came to Canada for the first time. When English settlers and European settlers made their way to the North Americas, have you noticed in the history books that they didn't come assuming they would learn anything when they got here? The colonists came and assumed that they knew everything and they were here to tell everybody else how to do it. And I think this approach, and it's a very European approach, understand me, it's a very European approach to assume that we're right about everything and we know best about everything. So we come with our light and we shine it on everything and we point out how everybody else is doing it wrong. The problem with this way of living is you're not a very good listener, right? Like that's not something when you read the history books, you don't go, those colonists, great listeners. And because they weren't good listeners, they hurt a lot of people, including themselves, but a lot of other people as well. And we, the church, have started to do this as well. We just come into situations and assume we know best in every situation. Because we know Jesus, we assume we know best. But notice how Jesus is. 
Jesus approaches us as one who is here to learn. That sounds super controversial, actually. Like, oh, Jesus came as someone to learn? Think about this. Jesus was born as a baby. We're okay with that, aren't we? I really had hoped for more, more confidence on that. Okay, so let's start another sermon. Um, <laughs> so Jesus was born as a baby. Are we okay with this? Could he talk? Could he walk? Could he feed himself? How did he do these things? Mary taught him. A human mother taught Jesus how to speak, how to walk, and how to eat. God himself, creator, in the beginning, Elohim creates the heavens and the earth, and he submits himself to learn from a human mother. I mean, Mary, you don't get much more special than that, but still a human mother who taught him. Jesus came to us as a learner. Jesus came to us as somebody who was willing to listen and learn. And I think what you'll notice is that he does that through his whole ministry. Notice how many questions Jesus asks of people. He even asks people to tell him things when he already knows the answer, the text tells us. He doesn't come in with a big spotlight, not with any interest in what's going on in your life, but he asks and listens and learns. And the early Christians got this. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians. He says to the church, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words of wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. You notice what Paul's doing here? I love that he's doing this here. If we were to try and capture this in a sentence, I wonder if you might say this. Paul basically says, I'm trying to get out the way of Jesus. Jesus is trying to shine into our hearts and he's given us this responsibility to carry this light. But shining the light is not to blind those that we shine upon and not to point the light at me, but it's to hope that in the light you might see the Jesus who is present to us. You're the light of the world, Jesus says. But he also reminds us in so many places that we can be a stumbling block as well, that we can get in the way of people encountering Jesus. And I'm tempted to think that that's what we're all looking for. I just want to encounter Jesus. We want to encounter a God who loves us. We want to encounter a God who cares for us. But too often, the reason people cannot, and as harsh as this is to accept, the reason that people cannot encounter the God who loves us is because those of us within the church have often made it difficult. We've often navigated our behavior in such a way that people can't see the light of Jesus. Think about the conversations you have in your own lives. How often do people say, I don't follow Jesus because I don't like Jesus? Or how often do you hear people say, well, actually my problem is I went to a church once and, and then they tell you a story. And as you listen to the story, you realize your problem's not Jesus, your problem's his people. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. That we do offer light and we can also offer darkness. We can offer light that points people to Jesus or we can offer light that blinds people and drives them away from Jesus. And I am convinced that we live in a world where Helen Keller's prayer is actually everyone's prayer. I want light. I need light. Give me light. And Jesus and Paul in his text today is calling us to be like that. 
Tyson's going to come and join me for some dialogue, but let me just say this for a moment as he comes up. One of the ways the early church navigated this was by gathering around the table as we did this morning. Do you notice what Tyson invited us to? It wasn't a church table. It was the Lord's table. It wasn't our table. It was Jesus' table. It wasn't our invite. It was Jesus' invite. And something stunning happens around the communion table. And perhaps, and, and perhaps it's important for maybe even just one person to hear this this morning. We have this strange thought often, because of the behavior of us so often in the past as Christians. Many people sit in a communion service and they ask themselves the question, am I good enough for the table? Am I worthy enough for the table? And many people stay in their seats and don't come to the table, not because they didn't hear the invitation, but because we select ourselves out and say, I'm not good enough. The early Christians understood something about the table which is profound, is the table makes you worthy. The table is the thing that calls you to this place. And the fact that you are called to it means you are welcome at it. And so often we, we miss this because of our history, because of the way we've told the story in the past. We assume, I'm not sure that light is for me. And our call, I believe, as a church is to, is to hear the invitation that you gave, Tyson, again and again and again. It's not our invitation. It's not our table. And Jesus says, you're welcome. And so we come to this table. And the early Christians have been doing this for years. It was the central reason they gathered together. which is because in the table, Jesus is with us. I don't really understand how that works. But we say in the table, somehow Jesus is with us and he's present to us and he's inviting us. But what's happened in recent years, I don't know if you've spotted this in the church, in recent years, we don't, we don't take communion all the time. We don't come together for Eucharist on a regular basis. Some churches, it's almost non-existent when it happens. We've been trying for the last year to do it monthly at Westside. And, 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 and it's kind of this weird, I'm going to use the word twice in one sermon, but discombobulation, because it, it's really high Scrabble score. Um, but the, it's this weird discombobulation that we know that communion is deeply important, but we don't do it every time we gather together. And what this has caused happen, I, I genuinely believe that what this has caused happen is the central point of our gathering is no longer the table, but it actually starts to become the sermon. It actually starts to become the teaching. It becomes like, oh, who's the person on the stage? What are they saying? Because that's what I'm here for. And one of the ways to check this in your heart when you ask, what am I here for? Is if you miss the service, what do you say? And I'm, not, I am very cognizant of how many people go, oh, sorry, I couldn't make it to church this week. I'll catch up on the podcast later. Early Christians, no one feel judged by that. I'm not judging. <laughs> but, think, but, but actually ask yourself a question. What does that tell you about yourself? What does that tell you is going on in your own heart about what is the fundamental reason that we're here for? And here's why I'm worried about that. And I think you've seen this happen in churches across North America over the last five to 10 years. When you put something other than Jesus and his table at the center of a service, we start to think we're here for other reasons than why we're actually here. And here's the problem with preachers. They start to think you're here for me. And you start to think this is the reason why we're here. And I think you just need to look at the celebrity culture that's happening within the church and still continue to happen to see how broken and damaged that actually is. That when we start thinking something other than Jesus is actually the light of the world, and we forget that our light is to shine to his light, we get ourselves in a big mess. We get ourselves in really difficult spaces. So I want to invite you into some conversation or that if you're, if you're interested in disagreeing with me strongly or asking me some questions. But 
uh, we have Kristen on the, uh, your right-hand side uh, with the microphone and uh, Tori over here. Uh, just throw up a hand and I'm open to is there any sort of thoughts, comments, questions uh, that you might have. And while you're kind of thinking about whether you want to speak in public or not, um, any thoughts, Tyson? Sure. Yeah, I've got, I've got some. Well, oh, yeah. There you go. Um, no, I love, I love what you're saying kind of about the Eucharist and the table. And, and when we move that, I think another thing that happens too when it, the sermon, I think I would agree with you, has replaced that, is it, is it puts us, which I know is a, a big value we're trying to even push back against, is, mm-hmm. but it puts us into spectator mode of what it mm-hmm. even means to be a church. We take our eyes off of Jesus and off each other because that mm-hmm. is really what the table also does is it puts yeah. us eyeball to eyeball with everyone else that we're in this kind of, much bigger story than I think we realize with and and puts us just to look at one person and it allows us to disengage in a way that I don't think Jesus ever intended us for to disengage with um, kind of as a church. So yeah, I think it's a a really interesting kind of thing to consider and think about what it means. I think if you have a question, please just throw up your hand and interrupt us because we can do this for a long, long time. And based on my calculations of Christine's sermon last week, we have about 40 minutes uh, left. So, um, you know, think about, like, really, really just to echo what Tyson's saying, please, you just throw your hand up. Don't wait for me to finish speaking. You are wise enough to know that just doesn't happen. Um, what, here's, here's my heart as a pastor for Westside, is that our, the reason we gather is to meet Jesus. Right? And, uh, and, I, and I don't want me or any people that preach in this church to be an obstruction to that. And one of the beauties of gathering around the table is it calls us to remember this is why we're here. We're here for Jesus. Because there's something beautiful about the fact that if you really lean into that, you come to the table, you meet Jesus, and then he sends you out into the world. Go and be the light of the world. Be the light that shines elsewhere. And I wonder if we've not sometimes in the way that we navigate this as Christians kind of not really understood what's going on here. And I've even heard preachers go, oh man, if we do communion, I'll have to shrink my sermon. And I'm like, you don't need to do that. You just keep going. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but, but there's this, this strange call for many of us in the contemporary church to actually, I think, lose sight of what is a church service doing, which in, intrinsically then can start to change our understanding of, of what we are then doing in, in the world. This is obviously making perfect sense to everybody because nobody's flinching that I can see. So, well, we do have a question. Thank you. I, on behalf of the congregation, thank you for, uh, <laughs> for, for putting them out of my misery. <laughs> um, good morning. Um, Hi, thank just thank you for what you've been saying. Uh, if I could be a bit vulnerable for a second. I know I've shared with you a couple times, David. It's not easy for me to come on a weekly basis. I mm. actually often fight. Um, getting up out of bed, coming. And the huge reason is, I think, why? I love listening to Mm -hmm. the sermon. I love the atmosphere of hearing other people's voices singing, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's like, that's not enough. Mm -hmm. And I often leave kind of feeling a bit empty of, Mm -hmm. okay, but where's my community? Where are people that are going to ask me how my week was, but actually care? Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for your humility in this. Thank you for checking yourself, but then also encouraging us to check ourselves. Um, and for the importance of why we're all here. Um, that touches me greatly, and I support that immensely. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm, I'm pretty certain. I mean, I mean, thank you for the vulnerability in that. I, it's a very, very hard to be uh, vulnerable in a, in a room <laughs> sort of this sort of size. But, but I would suggest that you probably speak on behalf of a lot of people, right? Um, that I'm just, maybe I can just listen to the podcast. And I feel this call as... 
as your pastor, if I can be so bold to use that sort of ownership language, but that, that I, I think there's a journey for us to go on as a church where, where we do come to meet around the table knowing that there's something happens as a result of being present to Jesus, that we become present to each other. I think this is a, I mean, I actually think there's a prophetic edge to what you're saying to us as a community, if I can, can, can take the words and use them that way. This is a long-standing journey of Westside, as people say, I love this church, but you don't get to meet anyone there. And, and I, that's not right. It is right, it's accurate, but it's not right. And, and I really am, it, it weighs heavy on me as pastor at the moment, it weighs heavy on all of us, doesn't it? It's the, how do we meet Jesus and each other in this space? So, so I hope we hear what's being said this morning because I think it's what's calling, I think it's what God is calling us to. Um, so thank you, thank you. If I, if I can just say thank you back. Um, Tori, you've moved, so do you have one more question for us? Just a quick one. Um, I've been challenged as well lately to ask questions before reacting mm. to the challenges that I encounter and I find it really really hard to actually use that part of my brain and just yeah. just sort of delve into what, what I'm kind of observing. Um, so I just wondered if you could practically give us a few good questions to ask, and I know that's way too broad, but what, what do you ask when, when you're trying to understand what's going on in front of you and then maybe eventually shed light? Mm, that's a great question. Um, I think... I mean, again, <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. Can you see my brain just stopped me talking for a moment there? Forgive me. Um, uh, let, me say, let me say it like this. I, there are ways to ask questions where people know you're not really asking questions. So I think there is a way of posturing yourself as a listener that actually almost any question you ask, if somebody detects from you this is a genuine question, almost any question will get a conversation going. Um, I, too, you know what I love? And, it, and it, I'm worried that it's maybe even a slightly arrogant question, but I, I love just asking this question here, how can I help? Uh, and I worry that it positions me as, oh, I'm the person that here that's able to do the helping. But, but I've, I've actually found that it opens up really, really good conversations. Somebody is telling me something, somebody is ranting to me about something that happens, I know you can't believe it, but uh, you know, somebody is like lost with something. I found the question, how can I help? Has, has actually opened some remarkable doors because I know I have to pay attention. This person might answer this question. And, um, and so I, I don't know if that helps in any way, but, but that's what I've found, and you've probably heard me use that question. I, I found it, I, it kind of unlocks something that if, I think a lot of us need help and we actually don't know how to help. And sometimes even somebody just being present to say, if there's a way that I can help, I wanna be in this with you. So my hope when I ask that question is that it postures me as somebody who's, my worry is it sounds like I'm here to solve and that's not what I'm trying to ask. But what I'm hoping somebody hears from me is I'd like to be in this together with you. And, I, and if, I, if I can journey that with you, I'd like to be able to do that. So I, maybe that's, you were wanting something better than that from me, but that's kind of where I've tried to, to live on. I'll, if I can jump in just briefly on that too. I think there's also the, a personal question that comes out of that internally that, I think we then start to listen for mm -hmm. that. I think when we're talking about sharing the light and being sent out, I, I think we're quick to assume that we're the ones that are bringing God to specific places. Mm -hmm. And I've found for me personally in that question, I think what then you can start to listen for is where's God already at work mm -hmm. and 
where are the potential opportunities for me to begin partnering with what God's already doing in these places as you hear what they're asking for help for or some of the vulnerability, mm -hmm. I think then you start to get glimpses of what's stirring within them as well, yes. which can become a helpful internal question, I would say, for me. Well, I think this is where your question about light of the world, I think, is, is, is really, you know, potentially lines up. That Jesus shines into situations, but notice how Jesus does it. You know, hey, can I have something to drink, he says to the woman in John chapter 4, you know. Uh, like, like, and that opens up this whole conversation of Jesus just meeting her at 11. Jesus is meeting this woman and asking her for something. And she even gets this, like, well, this is a little strange what's going on here. But look at the beautiful conversation. And, and I, I hope, one of the reasons why dialogical is so important for us as a community and why I hope we keep leaning into it. It's not that dialogical becomes a place where we say, oh, I get to say whatever I want now, but rather dialogical invites the listener to pay attention. And God works in the details. God, God works when we start to pay attention. And I really believe and hope that if we can start talking to each other more, we'll start to hear what God's trying to do with us. You'll notice that since we came back from, from the pandemic shutdowns, we've tried very intentionally to get further and further away from a spectator mode of church, right? So you'll notice, let's confess creeds together. Let's respond to the Bible. Let's read scripture together. Let's have a chat during the sermon, hear what we have to say. Let's pray together. And all of this is part of us wanting to live in a world where the light of the world is us, that Jesus has put this light into our hearts. And we have to live in that have sounds very oppressive in that sense, but, but I feel it is the call of Jesus. How do we live in that and let Jesus' light shine through us? And one of our hopes as a team is that if we come to church and dialogue, it reminds us we're not spectators of the gospel, but we are the people who live it out. Um, this, this quote here, perhaps let's, uh, let's land everything here for today. This quote here from Bishop of India, Leslie Newbingen, he says this, Live to provoke questions for which the gospel is the answer. You know, um, and, and perhaps maybe that's a little bit of a better response, actually, to, to, to your question just a few moments ago. How do, I, how do I provoke the questions for which the only thing that I can say in response is, hey, let me point you to Jesus. Let me, let me show you the light of the world who will change the situation. And, you know, this, like you are the salt of the earth. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Why don't we stand together? I want to offer us a blessing off the back of this text. Fascinating thing about salt is that it doesn't reproduce. It gives of itself to make things tastier or to preserve things. Similarly, light doesn't reproduce. It sacrifices of itself to make things be seen. So here's what I want to give you as a blessing this morning. May you be the salt of the earth. Like, may you be salty. But not salty like, you know, people say sometimes, like, well, they're a bit salty. <laughs> may things taste better because you're there. May you be light of the world. May you shine light into the places that need to see, but do it without hurting people. And as Jesus says, may you shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and be drawn towards Jesus. Grace and peace to you, my friends. Have a good week.